This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. My name's Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. The climax of our last chapter is David Bowie's set at Live Aid in the summer of 1985, one of the most iconic performances he ever gave. My guest today was alongside him on the Live Aid stage and in the helicopter on the nerve-wracking ride out to Wembley Stadium. His name is Thomas Dolby, and his time with Bowie is just one entry on his extremely lengthy resume. On his Twitter bio, he describes himself as a recovering synth enthusiast, but even that barely scratches the surface. He's best known as a techno-pop pioneer who helped define the sound of New Wave with albums like The Golden Age of Wireless and The Flat Earth, the latter of which contains my favorite song of his, Screen Kiss. His immortal 1982 smash, He Blinded Me With Science, seemed to predict his move into the burgeoning Silicon Valley tech sphere of the early 90s. His company, Beatnik, developed innovative audio software for websites and cell phone ringtones. In fact, at one point, Beatnik technology was used in two-thirds of the world's cell phones. Between 2002 and 2012, he served as the musical director for TED conferences, and since then, he's moved into teaching. Coming from a line of Oxbridge professors, he considers this the family business. He's presently on faculty at Johns Hopkins Peabody Institute, where he heads up the Music for New Media program. Thomas, or Professor Dolby, I should say, was kind enough to share his vast musical insights about David Bowie's work, and also his truly mind-blowing memories performing with Bowie at this historic concert before nearly a billion people. And they barely even rehearsed. Well, I guess just to start, as a music fan growing up, especially one interested in sort of technologically innovative sounds, what kind of impact did Bowie have on you? Even back starting with something like Space Oddity when he had the stylophone, what were your first musical impressions of him? I think probably, you know, the age that I was, we were aware of glitter rock before we really understood, you know, how how Bowie related to it. Um, I mean, in fact, I think that probably... 
All the Young Dudes was the first Bowie song that I heard. And Mott the Hoople was sort of just another glitter rock band, you know, at the time. Um, but glitter was sort of, was quite controversial. You know, I, I would have been, you know, 13, 14, 15 at the time. And it was quite controversial because some of my crowd sort of thought we took music more seriously than that. You know, I mean, there was also progressive rock back then, you know, and we were a bit dubious that somebody that wore makeup and had sort of glittery clothes and high heels and stuff could make serious music as well. So it was, it, you know, it was more that the first impression was more the visual one, the outrage, etc. And I, I think from there, I think Space Oddity might have been the next thing that I got into. But I only really, I think probably when Ziggy Stardust first came out and his popular, popularity suddenly skyrocketed, it's only then that I went back and got into Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory. And, and, and I think, it, you know, I'm not quite sure of the sequence. I might have been aware of, of you know, some of the, you know, more the hit songs of Hunky Dory, like Changes and Life on Mars and things. I might have been aware of them before Ziggy came out, but you know, at that point it was it, it wasn't it wasn't a genre to me. You know, I wouldn't have lumped him in with, you know, Mark Bolan and Sweet and Wizards and all of those people. You know, I, I realized that that he was you know somebody very special. And you know, the first concerts that I saw of his were around about that time, and uh, I was in a crowd. You know, I went to a quite high-end English schools and there was a real music intelligentsia who would sit around in coffee bars, you know, smoking cigarettes and talking about music, you know, for hours. And in those days, you would, every time a new album came out, you'd know about it a couple of months in advance and you'd read interviews and the day it came out, you'd run out and spend all your pocket money on it and you'd listen to it back to back, you know, several times while pouring over the lyrics and the credits and, and the album cover. And music was such a rarefied thing in those days, you know, compared to the way it is now, that it was really very special when, you know, an artist that you, that you followed put out a new record. It was a whole event. It's funny. I, my friends and I were just talking about this. Why I'm 33, and we were saying we're probably the last age group that remembers. You know, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts where there was one record store with not a great selection, and it was it was so you would just be kind of desperate for for anything. If you couldn't find the record you wanted, you know, you would get sort of the the, the, the adjacent sound just because it was it was sort of all there was. And it's and I, I as much as I envy um, people who are a little younger that kind of have access to to a whole recorded history out there at their fingertips. I, you know, I, I sort of am sad that they don't get to feel that sense of the, the excitement, the building up, the saving your money, going out there and you bringing it home, having a physical thing to hold and having it be, you know, in a funny way, a full body experience. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing, so I went to school in London and the other big deal for us was that um, Virgin Records on Oxford Street was the first so, so before then, I remember record stores where there were little booths that you could go into. So you request a certain record, and they say booth four, and you go in there, and it's like a little booth the size of a phone box, you know, surrounded by sort of egg, egg boxes, and and it would pipe it in in the speakers. I remember that growing up, but Virgin Records came out with so, – so they were initially a cut-price mail-order 
uh, record store. Um, so, you, you know, you'd see a listing in the back of a magazine, you'd order something, they'll order from them, cut price. But they opened their first store on Oxford Street in London. And what was special about it was that you they had a row of aircraft seats, ironically, considering uh, <laughs> you know, where they ended up, a, row, a row of aircraft seats and uh, headphones. And there they'd say, you know, go to number four, and you put on headphones and, and listen. And um, the... You know, the, 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 I do, I remember spending a pound and a half on an album. I think probably by the time, you know, by the time we got to Ziggy Stardust, it would have been seven or eight pounds or something like that was the price of an album. But that was a hell of a lot of money. And, and you know, you'd listen to two or three albums, decide which one of them to buy, you know, based on those listings. And, um, and, and you would, you would have the record sleeve in your lap while you're listening to it, you know. And then you go home with it in a plastic bag and you couldn't wait to get it home and put it on your own record player. And then usually listen to it, you know, side one, side two, side one, you know, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I mean, a group group of friends and, of mine and, uh, you know, we, we would really study uh, Bowie and um, each new phase that he went through. And we would religiously, you know, read articles about him and stuff. And, uh, and you know, I mean, he, he uh, it, to be a follower of Bowie back then was a, it was a very stimulating, but also a challenging thing. I mean, you know, he, he went through some phases that he didn't necessarily agree with, you know, like when he came, came back from Berlin, and he was like at one of the London stations in an open top car giving what looked like a Nazi salute. And, uh, you know, there were moments like that that were slightly sort of toe-curling moments. And, and then again, you know, when, when there was a BBC documentary called Cracked Actor, I don't know if you came across that, and it was, it was about the Thin White Duke tour. And he was such, I mean, he was a skeleton, you know, at that point. And um, it, it was very clear that there was sort of psychotic behavior going on, um, which we thought was wonderful, of course. But, um, you know, the, there's this this one iconic shot where he's in the back of a limo and he's got a carton of, I can't remember if it's milk or orange juice. And they said, you know, how does it feel to be so successful in America? And he said, you know, there's a fly in this carton of milk and I'm like that fly. <laughs> I mean, it, it must have been difficult. I mean, again, even just, you mentioned earlier about how initially he wasn't somebody that you viewed as as making, you know, in, in inverted commas, serious music. Was, was there a moment when that shift occurred? Like, what did something like Lowe do for you? Was it was it powerful to see someone of his notoriety using, you know, electronic instruments in a, in a meaningful way in, in, in pop music? Well, I, I'd, I'd already made the shift. I mean, you know, thinking back before that, I remember seeing Starman on Top of the Pops, um, which, am I right in thinking that was the first single off of Ziggy Stardust? Yeah, that was the big... No, I mean, you could, you could look it up. I mean, that I think that was probably the first single. And so he's in full glitter gear, you know, with his, his, his glitter suit undone to his navel. And he, he sort of draped himself around Mick Ronson uh, in, in a rather homoerotic way. And in those days, you know, Top of the Pops, the whole country watched it. I mean, something like three quarters of the adult population of the UK watched Top of the Pops every Thursday night. So if something dramatic happened, if there was a moment on Top of the Pops, you knew that the whole country was experiencing it 
almost simultaneously. And, and that was one such moment. I mean, there'd never been anything as overt as that. And it was just deeply shocking, really. But I think there were, there were you know, there were certain among the younger generations who were just, you know, whatever their own inclination w- was, they knew this was incredibly rebellious and um, a- outrageous for, for men to be behaving like this. And if you were a follower, if you're a, a disciple, you felt like this was your people, you know, making a stand. So to get from that to listening to a musical artist from more of a sort of musicological standpoint, you know, so so I, I went from that to listening to listening to his records and in, in you know, Virgin Records in Oxford Street and pouring over the lyrics and stuff. And I, I was a you know I went from being a sort of shocked individual to being a, a student and disciple really relatively quickly and um through you know so i mean, I mean ziggy was really a watershed aladdin sane was kind of ziggy part two but with a bit of a psychotic twist to it and and had some amazing sort of dystopian futuristic bent to it as did diamond dogs you know songs like sweet thing which just seemed to be a whole like sci-fi movie sort of set in some dark distant future and and then i guess young americans was a bit of was a bit puzzling because it was very clean cut by comparison and seemed to merge british pop you know there'd always been a strong sort of soul uh flavor to british pop especially from the north you know northern soul as we would call mm. it um but the idea of a, of an artist sort of crossing over color barriers like that and yet being clearly accepted and respected you know by by the you know by american black musicians um was pretty mind blowing again and I think for my generation sort of opened up for us an interest in in soul music in in early funk and so on and and then in rapids i mean i don't know what the distance was between these albums but less than a year i would imagine and and suddenly now we hear that he's gone to berlin with brian eno and he's championing you know craft work and um uh, kurt vile and it, it 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 just you know the the rate of exploration and adventure, you know, that, that he was going through personally as an artist at that point, while being under intense pressure as a focus of attention, you know, as a celebrity, was was just extraordinary. I can't really think of another example of an artist who was so much in, in the limelight, so much in the thick of the celebrity thing, who still managed to go on such a sort of artistic voyage with, you know, with his output, and the way he was studying and absorbing and sponging up these multicultural influences. I mean, it's easier to do nowadays. You can fly anywhere in the world just by clicking a few buttons. But back in those days, and he didn't even fly, right? He had to get on the ship (laughs) to go do this stuff, you know? Well, you've had the supremely rare and special experience of of being someone who who was was a fan and did follow him so closely to actually you know working with him and per, and performing with him i mean how did meeting him in the flesh meet with your expectations i always say you know don't don't meet your heroes was that was that true in your case <laughs> um no actually the contrary um i was 
there was a side of me that was slightly dreading it for that very reason. You know, I mean, he'd been so important to me and I was slightly worried that, the, you know, it would burst my bubble to actually meet him. Um, but he's so supremely rare. I would think that most of the people you would talk to that played with him or whatever had been fans. You know, you might find somebody, you might talk to Gail and she'd say, I'd never heard of the guy, but, you know, <laughs> but for the most part, you know, we would have been fans. And so um, meeting somebody that's sort of larger than life like that, it, it is a, you know, big step in your, in your personal voyage and people respond to it in different ways. But the surprising thing to me was that, you know, I was expecting the cracked actor, you know, the guy in the back of the limo. <laughs> With the carton of milk. Yeah, in the carton of milk. And in fact, he was a total gentleman, you know, he's very uh, sort of generous, um, effervescent, warm hearted, uh, made you feel like you were special, you know, that you, that you were sort of, um, you know, without making you feel like you were being scrutinized or under a microscope. He, he just seemed like somebody that appreciated talent, was interested in people. Um, you know, he, he was a seducer and he seduced mm. me along along with with countless others. Um, but I, I do remember, I mean, I had really very few interactions with him to the extent that I could probably list them. You know, if push came to shove, there's like a couple of dozen interactions basically from start to finish. And so I do remember them very clearly individually. And I was amazed at the beginning how, um, you know, he, he, the, the first conversation I ever had with him was along these lines. It was, uh, look, you know, Tom, if I may call you Tom, um, I've been asked to do this gig. It's in a couple of weeks. It's a charity thing. It's uh, it's going to be a big one. It's at Wembley. Uh, Bob Geldof's organizing it. My band, my regular touring bands, are off doing other things in the States. People like Earl Slick and so on. Um, I haven't got them. And I haven't got much time either because I'm shooting this movie with George Lucas called Labyrinth. And uh, I wonder if you could help me put a band together out of people that you know. So he, though he had worked with Kevin Armstrong and Matthew Seligman, who were sort of two musicians that I worked with a lot and I'd been friends with for years on um, Dancing in the Street and Absolute Beginners. And it was them that had recommended to Bowie, why don't you talk to Thomas because he's a producer and he's got knows a lot of musicians and uh, he'd be a good person to to help pull this together. So so Bowie had called them on my recommendation. He was he was aware of my music and seemed to like it. And he said, you know, we haven't got very much time. Uh, I'd like Matthew and Kevin to be involved, but can you help me, um, you know, put together the rest of the musicians? And if you could sort of be, you know, in charge of rehearsing them for me, because I'm only going to have a few hours, you know, to rehearse with you. So sort of along those lines, and I said, well, I, 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 that's an absolute dream. I'd love to do that. And he said, oh, would you? Oh, that would be just wonderful. That'd be just great. And of course, that, you know, there's no money or anything. It was a charity thing. But he seemed to be genuinely bowled over that a young generation of musicians would be willing to drop whatever they're doing to play with him, put the work in, do this charity gig for a good cause, and and so on, you know, he, see, he seemed to be genuinely delighted with that. Um, and, and, you know, I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, you know, I feel like I just talked to John Gielgud or some sort of classic, <laughs> you know, some classic English actor, not, not the cracked actor at all. <laughs>
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind-down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. It sounds like David gave you an awful lot of trust and freedom just in letting you be the band leader. What was he like when you were actually in the room and performing all together? It sounds like he was really generous in letting everyone be themselves and not micromanaging everyone. Yeah, I mean, that was very interesting. And his, his musicianship was very interesting because he always played it down. You know, you would, he, he wasn't a muso in terms of talking about why he played a Martin versus a Gibson and why he liked this tuning on his strings and, you know, how he was influenced by, you know, he, he totally played that down both in his, his uh, guitar playing, piano playing and um, sax playing as well. Uh, and he was a capable musician, but he seemed to feel that it would diminish his stature as a front man if, if he was viewed as as a sort of multi-instrumentalist or, or somebody that, that cared a lot about the music. You know, he, 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 I think, wanted to sort of give the impression the music just flowed out of him. It was just an intuitive thing, not something he ever studied. And, I mean, I doubt very much he ever practiced scales, you know. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, he was, he, was a, he, you know, he was a capable musician and um, certainly, you know, he could arrange for any instrument – but I think his his gift really when working with a band was that 
he would stand in the middle of the room and just sort of exude, you know, sunshine and, and wonderfulness. And he would, you'd look at him and you'd want to please him. You know, you'd want to play a part that he would like, that he would enjoy. Um, and, you know, he never got behind the keyboard with me and showed me something that he was hearing. He would all, you know, he would give you little hints and push, just prod you in a certain direction. But then it was, it'd be my idea that came out and you go, yes, you know, and, and then he would just, he sort of moved the band forward like that. And he would occasionally say, oh, I'm not sure about that intro. And he'd leave it at that. And then, you know, the drummer would say, well, what if I just started with this fill? Or, or the guitarist would say, okay, I could, I could play this chord to bring it in. And he'd go, yeah, that's much better. You know? um, so it, it, he was the opposite of, of micromanager, really. He, he was somebody that just um, inspired you to be at your best. And you mentioned he was only available to practice a handful of times. Was that a concern at all for you? Was there a sense of nervousness leading up to this? At what point did it become apparent that this wasn't just a charity show? This was something that was, you know, a fair, much bigger deal than that. Yeah, it was actually three afternoons on consecutive weekdays for about three hours each wow. in, a re in a rehearsal room in West London. Plus, we, we hadn't really had, that was, those were the band rehearsals. And then he, he wanted to do some vocal rehearsals. So we went to where he was shooting Labyrinth and he had a trailer. And the, the people that were going to be singing in, in the live thing, we just sort of routine some backing vocals uh, in his trailer. And, and that was it. Uh, and yes, it was a concern because he kept changing his mind about what songs he wanted to do. Oh, no. In fact, at the, at the beginning, when, when we first set up, he said, well, I, w I need to promote my current single, which was Loving the Alien. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's not a terrible song, but it's not, you know, wouldn't make his top 20 list of all-time classics. And as we got closer to Live Aid, I think he, he realized the magnitude of the show, that it wasn't just, you know, some charity festival thing it was going to be a global event and it would be sort of uh, you know i'm not sure if he knew then that it would be sort of immortalized you know that it would take on this sort of iconic um status like a woodstock or something like that but you know i, I think he realized after a while that it wasn't about promoting your current single it, it was it was about just pure pleasure for the audience both the live audience and the tv audience and he was back to a seduce. He was back in seduction mode again, <laughs> you know. And and he realised that he had to pull out some sing-along, feel-good classics from sort of you know from different eras. And we had to knock him dead. You know, we were playing after Queen, who are a great live band. And he, like you say, he was putting a lot of trust in us because we were, you know, we probably had an average age of about 24 and we could easily have been overwhelmed by the moment. Now, he never asked any of us if we'd ever played a stadium before. The answer was no. I don't think any of us have ever played bigger than about a 2,000-seater. I'm not sure if I'd ever done an open-air gig at that point. And, you know, he sort of he, he sort of didn't need to. I think he just sort of felt it. And, and I think probably if he'd walked in the rehearsal room and we'd sucked, he would have thought of a plan B. <laughs> get 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 Earl and Carlos on on a plane pronto. You get, know? get the Concorde. Um, yeah, but uh, no, I think he, I think he was feeling it, and I think he felt that it was appropriate that you know it being a UK show, he didn't show up with his professional American touring band. He had a bunch of local kids, 
I, I think I've read that you shared a helicopter ride with him over to, to the, the Wembley site. What was that ride like? What was he, was he, was, was he nervous? Was he chatty? What was, what was that like? So the, Live Aid was, was a, a huge deal in London that day to the extent that police were diverting traffic. And, you know, that the, the uh, I remember that morning, it's very, you know, very nice day. And I remember going for a walk that morning and every upstairs window that was open, you'd hear the radio going with the, the preamble to Live Aid. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you crossed the street, the car stopped at the traffic light, you'd hear, the, you'd hear it coming out of the car. And... I was instructed that I had to fly uh, in the helicopter from central London to Wembley Stadium, which is about, you know, to drive would be maybe an hour, but was sort of 12 minutes in the helicopter. And so we went from Battersea Heliport, which is just this helicopter pad by the River Thames. And um, so I went down there at the appointed time, which I think would have been sort of noon or something like that. And um, the word had leaked out that some of the Live Aid celebs were leaving from there. So there was a gaggle of autograph hunters at the heliport and there wasn't really security. So they were just sort of wandering around, you know, trying to get autographs and things. And we met in the lounge and uh, he was already dressed for the gig, as was I. And he was very nervous because he still wasn't flying at that point and he'd never been in a helicopter. Oh, no. Uh-oh. And so he was rather nervous in the lounge. And we went outside onto the pad and he had to sign some autographs. And a handful of fans were sort of following him with a camera. Um, I got a snap myself. On, I, I had a little brownie camera myself. And he was looking nervously at this helicopter. <laughs> and as soon as we got in, he turned into the thin white duke. <laughs> oh, no. You know, he, 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 had, a, he had a Homburg hat. And he plonked it on his head and pulled it down and started chain smoking. And the pilot was going, uh, could you extinguish cigarettes, please? So he went, fuck you. <laughs> and the, the, we sort of took off. And he was like, basically had his face pressed to the window. And he kept saying to the pilot, how long is this flight? And uh, he said, oh, it's about 12 minutes. So are there any skyscrapers or, or, or pilot? What do you do about pylons and electrical lines and things like that? He was, you know, he was an absolute diva for, for 12 minutes. And, um, you know, I remember I'd been in a helicopter before, but I remember banking over Wembley Stadium, which had those sort of two gold towers. Um, so it's, you know, very recognizable from the air, little wisps of cloud. And we banked over the stadium and I could see the crowd and the stage. The crowd were all over the field. And I could see on the screens at the side, like a close-up of Freddie Mercury sort of crooning to the heavens in the middle of We Are The Champions or something like that. And, and I mean, amazingly, years later when I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, if you remember that movie, they recreated my bird's-eye view of Wembley Stadium, you know, with a, with wow. a sort of a, like a drone shot, which they created in CGI with this sort of drone shot into the stadium and up to the stage with Queen on stage. So, so Bowie was a complete bitch for 12 minutes. <laughs> but the moment we touched down in, in like a, a parking lot behind Wembley, his face brightened up and he turned into, <laughs> he turned back into John Gielgud. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, out on the tarmac, there were about 100 photographers and um, he said, uh, oh, I like this bit, Tom. 
and he pushed <laughs> open the door and he went outside and immediately started posing for the photographers. And uh, there were some police sort of led us through the crowd of uh, paparazzi. I, I was bringing up the rear and we were taken straight to a green room at the side of the stage and Queen were just finishing up the set and they said, you'll be on in about five minutes. <laughs> so, no time to get your bearings. You're just there and you're on. Yeah, just there and on. And he'd only decided like the night before which four songs he wanted us to do. And we played, we practiced them, but we'd never played them back to back. You know, and when you're rehearsing as a band, you go through these phases and one is that you can... You can make a song sound decent about the third or fourth time you play it. And then eventually you get to a point where you can play the songs in any order and they always sound good, you know. But that's, you know, that's after weeks of rehearsal and a few gigs, usually. So he he decided the night before what the set was going to be. And his plan was to start, as I recall, had been to start with Rebel Rebel. We stood at the side of the stage and he said, you know what, let's start with TVC 1-5. And that meant a honky-tonk piano solo by yours truly. <laughs> not, not, not universally applauded for my honky-tonk piano playing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was that. Next thing I knew, we were on stage. But I mean, at that, once, once we were on stage, any nerves completely dissipated and you were just sort of wafted along by the atmosphere uh, of the crowd. Are there any snapshot moments that stick out from when you're on the stage, or is it all really just a, a, a blur, an electric blur? Um, you know, memory is interesting because I mean, I've seen, I've seen footage, which is almost from my point of view on the stage, of the whole performance. So when I, when I think of it, I'm not quite sure whether I'm recalling it from memory or <laughs> or, or, or whether I'm replaying replaying the video. I was certainly, I mean, it was it was certainly quite transcendent um partly because it took a lot of concentration to play songs that you know we were massively under rehearsed but the flip side was we've lived in these songs since we were 15 you know so so heroes for example which is deceptively simple it's only got a couple of sections really but they vary in length and sometimes the simple songs are easy to screw up because you lose track of where you are you know if you're playing a complicated Steely Dan chord sequence, then then it's easier to keep track of where you are than than something that's just a guitar riff, you know. So I was terrified I was going to screw it up, but I mean, I just let go and I I just sort of I regressed to my teen fanboy self, you know, as a as a, as a Bowie fan, and, and my fingers basically played the notes on their own. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind-down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. So you finish the set at Live Aid, the crowd goes wild, you walk off the stage. What was the moment like stepping off? How do you come down from a moment like that, playing in front of, I guess, including the television audience, almost a billion people? Was it just a massive exhale, or did did Bowie turn to you and say something? What was that like? Um, He was very pleased with the way it had gone. You know, there there wasn't actually a a, a huge sort of backstage scene and there weren't a lot of liggers, as we call them. There wasn't a party going on backstage. It was mostly people associated with the bands and their crew and their management, stuff like that. You know, I I remember him chatting with Freddie Mercury and and being hustled into an MTV interview, uh, which I think you can see on YouTube. I already had two or three beers in me by then, and for some reason that they asked me if I would if I would be in the interview with Bowie, and it's it's and it's funny, it's actually sickening when you look at the interview because they asked Bowie a question that he's very he's very cool and controlled and put together, and they turn the you know turn the mic to me and I might as well have just said it's David fucking Bowie, <laughs> I'm like you know who that is? That's David fucking Bowie. You know, um, but um, and then they asked him again a question about the day, about the cause, and the smile went off his face, and he turned to the camera, and he basically said, "This is this is an important moment. You really need to find a way to donate to this cause. It's a worthwhile cause, and you know there are kids starving. And you know he was like very sincere, and really doing the job." for Bob Keldoff that, that he would needed to do. And uh, it, it, the level of professionalism was amazing to me that he could, uh, he could sort of switch modes like that. Very, very mature, I suppose, you know, seemed very mature to me. Did you see him again after that? When was the next time that, that you saw David after, after Live Aid? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw him a few more times. Um, I did another gig with him in, in New York at the Beacon Theatre, um, would have been around about 2000, I would think. There's also a record of that online. It was filmed by his son, 
um, for a movie. And it was it was like a private gig for his web subscribers. And um, I had my tech company, Beatnik, at the time, and we'd, we'd been working with him. Uh, he, he was sort of a spokesman for my company. He, uh, they, they adopted our technology on his website, and he did an ad campaign for us and stuff, which was great. And um, he did this gig in, in New York, and um, I, I had a VIP table with a few of my in-laws who are from New York. And uh, halfway through the set, he just you know, put his hand to his forehead and he said, is Tom Dolby out there somewhere? Come on, come on up here. I mean, literally. So so I wandered up on stage, and Mike Garson was playing, was playing uh, keyboards, so they gave me a remote keyboard. I just joined in for the last few songs um, and hung out a little bit. Uh, yeah, we, we talked uh, on and off um, over the years. Uh, he, he was very interested in technology, you know, at the height of the internet boom. And, uh, you know, he, he always seemed to view me as somebody that sort of plugged into that world and he had a lot of questions for me. You were obviously a great fan of David's music for years before you met him. By performing alongside him and sort of being inside his music with him, did that give you new perspective into his work or new insight into what he does? I think I was, I was surprised that, you know, you asked the question, did he micromanage you? I, I assumed that he had such a level of control over his music and his arrangements and production that he would have a hand in all of that. You know, I mean, there are a number of comparisons to Prince that I think are quite interesting that, you know, I won't go into here. But, you know, by comparison, Prince was somebody that absolutely, you know, controlled every note and every step and every lighting camera angle and, you know, had, had total control over everything. Um, Roger Waters, who I worked with, same deal. Uh, the other end of the spectrum George Clinton is more like David Bowie, you know. I, I never saw. I worked with George a lot, and I never saw him tell a musician what notes to play or or a singer what notes to sing. He would just like, you know, you either got him smiling and got his ass wiggling, or you didn't. And so he he just sort of drew it out of you, you know. He was just a lightning conductor, and and Bowie really was like that. And so it surprised me that that somebody could put such a strong stamp on every aspect of their performance without being hands-on and i mean personally i'm more in the roger waters camp you know i'm so sort of insecure that i have to <laughs> i have to have um total control over everything so many things i want to talk about i really want to talk to you about your position at johns hopkins for the past i think five or six years now you've been teaching an undergraduate degree course in music composition for film and games at the the peabody conservatory what has that experience been like for you can you talk a little more about that that's that's so fascinating to me as someone who who loves music and the evolution of how it's made yeah well um you know during my career i've always been very drawn to things that are sort of uncharted and undiscovered really i mean in the early early days of um diy synth music making when you know for the first time technologies became available that would enable somebody to go into a back room and you know make a record without the benefit of a whole recording studio just using machines and and trying to get machines to sound human uh and so on and there were only a handful of people doing that you know in in the uk in 19 78 and um you know I, I think that we were i think you know my generation probably the first sort of underground synth pop slash electronic music generation in the uk 
uh, we're all Bowie fanboys, basically. I'm, t- I'm talking about, you know, the Human League, Soft Cell, uh, Orchestral Maneuvers, Depeche Mode, uh, people like that, Gar- Gary Newman. Um, we'd all grown up with Bowie and we sort of took the, 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 the DIY ethic that was suggested by, by a sort of a vision that we had of, you know, Bowie and Eno in, in Berlin somewhere playing with a bunch of machines. And we sort of turned that into a whole movement of electronic pop. Five years later, that was no longer appealing in the same way. I mean, and part of that was because it had all sort of trickled down to street level. Now, by the end of the mm-hmm. 80s, all of that technology was available, it was affordable, it was reliable. There were multiple different brands and choices to choose between. You could get tuition, you could get software, you could get additional sound libraries. And you had like 10, 15 years of music to listen to that would sort of point you in the right direction. So at that point, that's not a genre or a place to be that appealed to me anymore. Does, does that make sense? So it, because it had, it had lost its rarity, it had lost the... I no longer had the sense of being a pioneer in that world because there were 10,000 other guys also able to be in the same space. Um, conversely, in Silicon Valley, there was technology and software and engineering that offered a whole new range of possibilities from video games and CD-ROMs and laser discs and installations and, you know, also uh, computer-generated images and, and all sorts of different possibilities there. And again, that, that was uncharted, you know. It, it was being done in very expensive high-end studios and laboratories, but it what, that, to, to use, to take the DIY ethic into those areas and make my own software and things like that. That was the new frontier, if that makes sense. So fast forward another 10 years, the web has sort of come, the bubble has grown and and popped. But what was emerging then, there were young kids getting their hands on phones that had never even owned a computer. You know, the first time they'd ever been on the internet was on a smartphone. (laughs) And again, you know, those, this was the new frontier again. And so that's where I went with, with my company, Beatnik. Scroll forward a few more years, and in film, digital filmmaking, uh, the same thing was happening. You know, fil- filmmaking used to be something you had to have a crew, you had to pay union members, you had to go and buy celluloid stock, you had to rent cameras and lights. And now suddenly, you know, with a $500 digital camera, you could make a film that was technically just as good. You could edit it yourself on your personal computer. You could go to a festival like Sundance and show it and maybe, you know, get a big distribution deal. So that was the new frontier. So, so I've always gone to the new frontier. You know, that's, that's where I feel most alive, you know, most stimulated, most creative, working in an area where nobody's written the rule book yet. You know, there is no rule book. There's no user manual. And so, I, I, you know, I've hopped from one place to another, you know, over the decades. And I got to a point in my life, you know, in the early 20-teens, where I just, I didn't see where I was going to go next. There was nothing in particular that appealed to me as the next place to go and be creative. Um, and, but conversely, you know, I, I thought back to when I was younger and, you know, now I had teenage, like college age kids myself. And I realized that when I was, when I was college age, 
there was no university course that I could have done that would have been interesting to me then. You couldn't go and do a course in experimental filmmaking or electronic music or synthesis or anything like that. Nobody was offering that in the UK at the time. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I left school at 16 and worked in a fruit and veg shop. And, and, and yeah, I'm from a family that is very highly academic. Uh, my dad was an Oxford professor. My mum taught algebra. I have siblings that are very distinguished in their fields academically. And uh, it suddenly occurred to me, I'd like to maybe see if I can take a shot at teaching what I know, you know, to the next generation um, and see if, if I have, in fact, accrued any any wisdom and experience that I could maybe pass on. Um, and I was given that opportunity by Johns Hopkins, um, who I only really knew about as a medical and research uh, institution. But it turned out that they had an arts, um, whole arts side as well. And they were looking for somebody to help them open a film center uh, in a poor part of Baltimore. Now, I, I vaguely knew Baltimore. I've been through here on tour, like the city, very much. Um, even though there's some shocking poverty here, there's some, you know, really gorgeous neighborhoods and uh, really interesting artistic musical history. And I came here and really liked it. And I liked the atmosphere at Johns Hopkins. And I liked this opportunity they had to, to open this new center. So they, get, they gave me a three-year gig doing that. As I got to the end of it, you know, my, my wife was here with me and she's from New York. Her family are from there, just up the road. And um, we said, we're not ready to leave here yet. And so I, I talked to various different departments at Johns Hopkins and, and I'd I taught a little bit at the Peabody Institute, which is their music conservatory. And they said, well, do you want to come up with a, an idea for a degree program I, I told them the same things i told you it's like there, there was no course i could have done you know that would have taught me you know i had to teach myself and they said well can you devise a course so um i spent a few months looking around at what else was out there and i realized that there was really no undergraduate course where you could learn how to do music for picture uh, whether it was games or film or whatever Typical thing to do would be you, you do an undergraduate music course, and then you go do a master's at you know NYU or UCLA or whatever in, in film music or game music, maybe Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Um, but they were master's programs, not really undergraduate programs. So I said, okay, well, you know, you guys are sort of late to the game. There were people who was a conventional conservatory. I said, let's leapfrog these other schools and offer an undergraduate program in music composition for media and uh, that was five years ago and i've been doing that ever since it's funny my my girlfriend and i met at film school at nyu undergrad and uh and this would have been 2006 2007 2008 when we were still cutting film on steambeck machines with you know actual film and we were just saying the other day you know i i would love to meet students there now because they're probably starting on day one as 10 times the filmmaker we could have ever hoped to be because they've had just years of of, of learning to manipulate visuals just on their phone and they're such better more innate visual storytellers just because they've they've, they've grown up with these technologies have <laughs> have you experienced anything like that with with, with your students where it, it's almost like they just grasp these these concepts innately because it's just been something that they've had the tools since, you know, in birth almost in some ways. Well, you, you, I think you'd be surprised actually that, that, you know, current NYU film students probably make all the same mistakes that you guys did. Um, <laughs> just on digital. Uh, 
just on digital and more cheaply. You know? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and, and part of the reason for that actually is this, and that is that if you're 18, 19 years old today and you hit a problem, you, you, you come across something that you don't understand or you don't know how to do it, find a way around it, you're a few key presses away from the solution mm, because true. somebody on YouTube will have done a tutorial on how to solve that problem uh, you can download a user manual. You can post a message on a forum and, you know, tomorrow morning you'll have a dozen different answers. You can put your bad film up on, uh, you know, on social media and people will critique it. Um, you'll get some haters, but you also get some very constructive criticism. And so you, you go through this cycle very quickly. But you, what you don't need to do is ever really solve, you know, creatively problem solve yourself because the solution is just around the corner. And, and there are problems with that. One is that that solution is going to be in the search results for thousands of other guys that you know ask the same question. So you're all going to apply the same solution to it, which tends to homogenize things and funnel them all into a certain sort of mediocrity. And the second thing is that you know your brain chemistry when you're 18 years old you're not done learning by by a long while because we're never done learning. But especially at that age, you're still a sponge. And if you're never, if you on your journey, you never hit a hurdle that you have to figure out how to circumnavigate it using just the tools in front of you, the limited tools in front of you. You know, a certain area of your brain never needs to develop. And 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 I believe that it's in that creative problem solving that artists establish their original voice. And I think if you take that away, it's very hard for people to develop a voice that will enable them to rise above the white noise floor, you know, of all of the people out there doing, attempting to do the same thing. So, you know, one of the focuses really of my course is how do you sort of disable some of those you know, that, 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 how do you, that safety net that, that they have of being able to just, you know, Google something, um, how do you take that away and force them to use their, use their mind and their creative creativity? Yeah, you think back on some of the, the Beatles studio explorations that were mistakes. I mean, putting the, the backwards guitar solos and the, you know, the feedback on I Feel Fine or things like that, the, the accidents that, that don't happen if you're, if you're just sort of handed the correct answer without really working for it. Now, that's a really be fascinating to think of what, what David's, David Bowie's music would have been like had he grown up with Google. <laughs> really, yes. Uh, uh, and I think, I think he was more about people, really. I think he was, he was more about the popular um, consciousness, you know, the, 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 the way people follow trends and fashions and, and so on. I think he... And, and he wanted to be a manipulator of of all of those things and he was you know extremely good at it off the record is a production of iHeartRadio. if you liked what you heard please subscribe and leave us a review for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? 
but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.